This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Ryan Burge, so he is a podcast alum. He was just back on episode 264. That will be in the show notes, so you can check that out. But if you missed that episode, he is a pastor, writer, and PhD in political science, and he's also a professor, so kind of a unique bird in all those types of things. He's a pastor of a small Baptist church, and he's also the assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. And on the last podcast, we talked about a book that he released called The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. So this book does a really deep statistical dive into the increasing number of Americans that have no religious affiliation, but then he did a follow-up book. And I just finished reading this follow-up book. This book is out now. If you're listening to this podcast, it's called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. So as you're reading through this, and we talk about this in the show, we get into individual myths and they just don't seem like they would be right. But then he gives you a statistical reason as to why these things are myths. And each one of these myths are, are they're all standalone myths. So you don't have to read them, you know, kind of in one line or something like that. But guys, I got to tell you the, the first episode that we did together. I really enjoyed it, but I could tell that he was trying to just lean on the statistics a lot. He, he wasn't letting me kind of pull him in to the world of opinion, but on this one, we got well into that and we had a few dust-ups in a positive way, but guys, you're definitely going to listen to that. And towards the end, we got in a, a pretty significant dust-up about some things that we definitely disagree on. Uh, and I'll just kind of leave it there. So you're going to make sure that you listen to the end, but it was such a productive conversation, a good conversation. He and I had a good chat even after we were done. And it's another one of those examples. You can vehemently disagree with somebody and not hate them afterwards. Again, this modern context where you have to hate the person is just absolutely ridiculous. But guys, I don't want to keep them from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ryan Burge, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks so much, Kyle. I appreciate it. Hey, I think this is maybe uh, the second closest time period from someone's first appearance to their second appearance. So I don't know if that just means you like us like a whole lot or you're just not that scared of the questions I'm going to ask you. I, I Bring it. I'm ready for anything. Let's go. Okay. All right. Now, I will say, you've been on this podcast before. You were on episode 264. That is in the show notes, guys. You can go check it out. That's what I talked about in the intro. But at the beginning of that episode, uh, we talked about the fact that you were both a pastor and a political science professor and a statistician, I guess. So to any of our new listeners, which we're so thankful for you or any of the folks that missed episode 264, briefly give us an idea of how in the world someone can be both a pastor and a poli-sci professor. Yeah, it's just I don't know any. It's like how do you ask a fish what water feels like, right? Like it's all right. it's all I know. I've literally done this since I was twenty three years old. So I started out as a pastor. I was a youth pastor as an undergraduate, um, and then when I went to grad school, I needed a job. To be completely frank with you, and I knew that I had a background in ministry, and always churches are looking for pastors. Um, and so I got hooked up with a little church or close to where I was going to grad school. And then, you know, I actually quit that job because I, I had a graduate assistantship at, at, at my graduate program at that point. So I didn't think I had time. Then another church called me and said, would you would you be our pastor? And I said, yeah. And 15 years later, I'm still the pastor. So there wasn't a lot of intention, I guess, on my side in terms of like, I want to be a pastor and a political scientist. That was never my my goal in life. But it just seems like I just said yes to a lot of things. And it puts me in yeah. this really weird situation where now I do both things professionally and I actually think it actually makes me a better pastor, and I think it makes me a better social scientist at the same time. 
Right. Well, I asked you this on the last show. And so guys, you can compare his answer now to see if he was full of crap then or full of crap now. But the world of faith and the world of academia don't seem to align in a lot of ways. Now, for me personally, I feel like you don't get academia with without uh, a, a God-based faith, without a biblical-based faith. We don't really have you know, academies. We don't really have universities. But from your perspective, since you've kind of lived in these two worlds, you know, how do these two things coalesce, the world of faith and the world of academia? Yeah, you know, I think they're not as antagonistic as people think they are, honestly. Right. Like, I'm in a department where I think most of our faculty are, are church-going folk. You know, but we're we're you know a regional institution in rural Illinois. I think it's different, like in certain parts of America. Just like it's different everywhere in California, it's different. Whether in the academy or on the street, it's a different environment. Most, I think, most academics when it comes to faith are they're they're not antagonistic towards it. I think there's a small a small portion who are very vocally antagonistic towards faith. But I think you know a, a good chunk are religious people, and then the kind of the middle is kind of how America is, which is like I could take it or leave it. Like I'm not I'm not angry at religion, but I also don't embrace religion. And so you know for me, there's this really interesting question when I was applying for jobs whether I should put when I was applying for academic jobs should I put my work as a pastor on my CV. Mm-hmm. And if I asked five different academics what I should do, it was really interesting because half of them said do it and half of them said absolutely do not do it um, because it might turn some people off. But also the other side is like saying, listen, I've led meetings. You know, I've, I've you know, you know, I can preach. I can talk to a congregation. I can organize a group. I'm used to doing service, you know, whether it be academic service or, you know, church service. So, you know, it was a really interesting and actually it's not on my CV anymore, but it's all over my website. Now that I got my foothold in, I'm much more comfortable saying I'm both things, but I do think there's enough people on a committee who are anti-religion would say, we can't have this guy because he was a pastor, that I left it off at that point. It probably was a good idea then, but now it actually, I think, is my greatest benefit that I do both at the same time. So you kind of get in the door with with one perception, and then you once you get there, then you change yourself a little bit. And I don't think I'm dramatically different than I was 10 years ago, but I'm just a little bit more open about you know, my faith and my life. And the other thing is, I tell people this all the time. I think to understand human nature is to understand the one that created all of us, you know, to understand how we act in groups, to understand how we vote, to understand, you know, how we engage in church life tells us about how we are as human beings and who we are as human beings. Is our nature good or bad? Are we willing to cooperate? Are we not willing to cooperate? You know, can we compromise or can we not compromise? I think in trying to understand those things is trying to understand how God made us. So I really see what I do is kind of revealing God's truth in a social science world, you know, just as much as a pastor does from a pulpit on a Sunday morning. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you getting into all that detail there. But really, what we need to do is something that you teed up in our last interview is we need to talk about your brand new book. So guys, if you're listening to this, that means this book is out there. It is for your consumption. It's called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. And normally I like to hold up the book so the viewers can see it, but you only got your book yesterday. So you're going to have to hold up the book. There it is. It is there. there. In the flesh, in in hardback, it's all squared away. But here's the deal: I always like to give uh, give the author and uh, the time period and the space to basically describe the book in their own words. So, in your own words, what is this book about? And in a way, is is this book is Twenty Miss, which is how I'm going to refer to it, a follow up book to your first book, which we talked a lot about on the last podcast, which is called The Nuns. Um. In some ways, yeah. I mean, it's the same style, right? Which is a lot of graphs and <laughs> a lot less words. Um, but in some ways, it's different because it gets out of that just talking about the nuns specifically and talks about religion. It actually just talks about politics more than the, the previous book, um, mm-hmm. which is something that you know I think my editor wanted me to do more of. I think the general public wanted me to do more of because they don't see a lot of this kind of discussion from someone like me instead of you know like a talking head on CNN or Fox or whatever. 
So really the genesis of the book is being on social media a lot and seeing people say stuff about religion so confidently. Like they're sure this thing is, exists this way. And me knowing if you look at the data that that's not true at all. And, you know, some things are like counterintuitive to what people believe about the world. If you look at the data every day, it kind of it breathes out. You know, over time, you start seeing things and there's more layers and you peel more layers back and you get asked more questions. And you start learning more things. And I realized, you know, I could turn these into a series of blog posts, but that no one reads blogs. You know, like yeah. no one's going to read a, a 58,000 word blog post because that's that's how long the book is. But what I wanted to do, each of those 20 myths are self-contained. So you can read myth seven, then myth three, mm -hmm. then myth 20, then myth five, and you don't miss anything. So you can pick this book up and read one or two myths and then put it down and come back a week later or a month later and read two or three more and not lose anything. I like that whole segmentedness just from a practical standpoint because I didn't have to think in a big arc. Instead, I had to think in little 20 little chunks. So my, my goal each week was write one or two of these each week. So and the goal was really kind of a practical one as much as it was anything else. But I also wanted to get down in print and say, listen, I'm, I'm putting a marker down and saying this is not true. You, you know, you believe this to be true, but it's not. And so kind of the whole the theme of the whole book is let's let's debunk some things that a lot of people believe or a lot of people just haven't thought this much about this stuff as I have. Thank God for that. Right. So yeah. I can write books like this. And so give them a way to think about the world in a more empirically rigorous way and hopefully a more objective way about how religion works, how politics works and how those two things kind of work together. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you going into that detail. And that's exactly how the book reads because I'm I'm a very directional person to where it's like, I have to start in chapter one and then move on. Whereas other people read books like they're just, eh, they'll go through the table of contents. They'll be like, yeah, I don't really want to do that. And then they'll kind of move through because I'm assuming there's a nugget in each one of those myths and each one of those chapters that is something that I can walk away with and apply in my everyday life. But you, you mentioned this just a second ago. You kind of alluded to it. This book, as well as The Nuns, features a ton of graphs and data. Uh, much of that data comes from surveys. And, and here's the thing, and I was just talking about uh, this with one of our big supporters yesterday because he sent me this survey uh, or this data, and the headline was 40% or 30% of Gen Z Christians consider themselves to be LGBTQ, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah. what? And then he clicked on the link and he looked at it and it was like 600 respondents. They had 17 minutes and they answered 79 questions, right? So they didn't have a whole lot of time to answer. And so he kind of dug in just barely. But but here's the thing that we go into, and you're going to have to explain this because I'm not a political scientist. I don't really dig into data all the time. Um, it's really, really hard for me to perceive that you can get an accurate representation of any population when you're talking to so few of them. Because, you know, you're talking to a few hundred people or maybe a few thousand people. And how in the world can that be indicative? Even at my 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 church, our Sunday school would probably respond to a survey very, very different than the Sunday school that shares a wall with us, right? And yet, if you talk to mine as opposed to them, you're going to get these ideas about the church that I go to. And there's problems with self-reporting. There's all these issues. And so that's always in the back of my head when I'm reading any data, which is how did they get this data? Did, were these people even smart enough to read the questions and respond correctly? Did they, did they talk to the right people? Like, help me understand. I'm dumb. Help me understand. Okay. These, there's a lot to unpack. I, I hate know. to use Let's that unpack term. All of it. Let's go. Let's unpack all of it. Okay. First and foremost, I'll say this is polling perfect. No, absolutely not. Is it good? Sometimes, <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah. I think we we're always, and there's actually an entire organization called AAPOR, American, American Academy of Public Opinion Researchers. So there's people who literally spend their entire life trying to get better at this. There's no mm -hmm. benefit to them for being worse at this. So they're really trying to get better. And what I'll say is this, is life better with polling or without polling? I, I can't believe the life would be better if we got rid of polls. Okay. I just, I just yeah. cannot conceive of a world where like Dewey defeats Truman would be every single election. 
we'd always mm-hmm. be surprised like by what happens. Okay, so we are better with polling even when it's not great, and it's not been great the last five or six years. It's actually gotten worse um, for a mm-hmm. bunch of interesting, nuanced reasons that are actually really hard to fix. Uh, and primarily, that comes back to Trump. Trump voters are non-response voters now. They don't respond to polls because I think they're all biased. Which Trump kind of planted the seed in their mind that they are biased, and actually kind of creates this weird feedback loop. So, the way we overcome that is two things: one, randomness. Okay, so we try to be as random as we possibly can. In that we, you know, we you can't just talk to one like six hundred people is not enough people. Okay, so randomness. Right. We try to go to a general population and say we want fifty percent men. 50% women. If America is 60% white, we want our sample to be 60% white. If America's 30% of Americans are under the age of 40, our sample should be 30% of Americans under the age of 40. If we do that in a random way, then theoretically our poll is accurate. Think about this. When you get a blood test, how much blood do they take? Do they take Very it all? Small Very no. small amount, right? Like less than 1% of your blood. And yet we go, well, it got high blood pressure or my cholesterol is all messed up because that 0.2% of my blood tells me that because your blood is randomly mixed throughout your body. When we pull it out, we get a random sample of your blood. Same thing with polling, right? We randomly sample people. The other thing is that we're dealing now with polls that are incredibly large, not 600 people. I I have a poll right now that has 477,000 respondents. And when you get to that level, you know, there, a lot of the problems you face with polling sort of go away. Um, and, you know, I know I know the stat you're talking about, by the way. Jordan Peterson tweeted it out yesterday about, you know, 40% of people are LGBT. Right. That's actually really, really high. Um, the answer is it really breaks down by gender. A third of um, college-age women say they're not heterosexual, and 20% of college-age men say they're not heterosexual. But then it drops precipitously as you go up in age. By the time you get to 30, it's like 15% of each gender. So... I think the, the right answer is in the general population, what percentage of Americans are not straight? It's probably 10%, I would guess, overall. But it's, it's there's a huge age gradient there. And by the way, 600 people is not enough people to do a poll with. So that's what makes it's it hard, by the way. It's enough to create a headline. It's enough to create that headline, though. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's the problem is you got to think when you look at a poll, what was the purpose of the poll? Was it to get a good headline or was it to do good science? And the well, kind of work I do- about that. Yeah, exactly. Right. My my job is to do good science, not get good headlines. And sometimes they do both, right? So I'll I'll, I'll fully admit I want to get a good headline, but right. the science for me is more important than the headline. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's helpful for people to understand is like there are people that are trying to get to bedrock and try to get to truth, and there are other people that are like, oh my gosh, I could sell this to CNN and I'll get like twenty more followers on Twitter. It'll be amazing. But let's go ahead and dig into the contents of Twenty Miss because the intro of the book literally begins with this sentence. And I'm going to give you a little bit of crap for this. Okay. This is the first sentence. Good. I was doing what I knew was a mistake. I got into an argument with someone on social media. (laughs) Ryan, what in the heck were you doing years ago? I mean, I'm talking, I'm not some sort of like, you know, uh, the most wisdom filled Solomon ever, but years ago, I'm like, I'm not reading the comments anymore. I'm not engaging with morons. I don't even know if this is a real person. This could be an Iranian bot or a Russian bot or some troll that literally gets paid all day long to sit here and troll people. I'm not interested. I'm not doing it. What were you doing arguing with somebody on social media? And let me guess, I you didn't change their mind, I'm assuming. No, no one changes anyone's mind yeah. on social media for goodness <laughs> sakes. I think it's like your you're like your 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 like your mongrel mind, your heathen mind kicks in. It's like I can do it this time. <laughs> you know, like right. you get a like a, a a jolt of optimism about the about human nature and you're like today's the day. I'm going right. to change someone's mind on social media. But, you know, that's and I think you're exactly right. Like as I've gotten that sounds so terrible. As I've gotten a bigger platform, I've gotten a lot more followers on social media, right? Which means you get a lot there's a lot of good things that come out of that, but there's also a real dark side of that. 
right? Mm-hmm. I had a tweet that went viral like last week and it got like 500 retweets and like 500 million, 500,000 impressions. If even 0.1% of respondents to that are, are mean, that's a lot of meanness. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a lot of darkness. And so I've had to really kind of change the way I deal with social media now. And that I, I, on my, on YouTube, especially, I don't read anything I've ever, any comments on any video I've ever done. Cause they're, they're, it's just a troll farm. It's just the hatefulness. It's like 99% of those people will not say the thing. And by the way, there's social science about this. You know, the kind of people who are trolls online are actually bullies in person. So they just, yeah, I know. So, yeah. but, but it's worse online because there's no, you don't get punched in the face exactly in Facebook comments. So that's the problem is these people, they, they, there's no, and here's the other thing I hate about Twitter, especially there's an information asymmetry because I'm me on social media. My name is Ryan Birch. I've got all the links to all my products, all my books, all my stuff right there. You know who I am. Some idiot can come on there and have a, a random name. You know, they made up, but they're completely anonymous and just throw and hurl insults at me and face absolutely no repercussions for that at all, personally, professionally, or otherwise. Well, if I say one thing that's slightly out of step with what the majority wants, I will get pillared and they will never buy my books ever again. So, you know, that's to me is so incredibly frustrating. And so I don't engage with anonymous accounts anymore because there's just, uh, there's nothing for me to gain and everything for me to lose by doing that. Right. Even if I can determine that the person's probably real and every, and I can feel it, I can feel that anger, that ginger Irish anger, just rising up inside of my being. And then I go, er, nope. And I just put my phone down and I move away because it's like, because the thing is, is you craft this wonderful, uh, you know, spelled correctly, correct punctuation response, and it's perfectly crafted. And then this idiot just goes, well, I don't believe in that. And they, they just, they don't spell half the words right. And then it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm the one that started this. They threw the first grenade, but I picked it up and ate it instead of just throwing it back at them for whatever reason. So mm-hmm. I, I totally get that. But here's the thing. You had so many good things in the intro. So I want to go into another thing just in the intro. Yep. You say this. A growing segment of the population is completely unwilling to even entertain facts that may contradict the way they think about politics, culture, and society. Now, here's the issue about quote-unquote facts. For any of you not watching this, you're just listening to this, I use major big-time air quotes. Especially in the area of, in the era of COVID, in the era of modern politics, facts change constantly, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of people want to appeal to authority. Right. You know, they'll appeal, appeal to the CDC or they'll appeal to this person or appeal to that person. But the, the appeal to authority falls apart if your authority figures are full of crap or willing to lie for political or, or power gain, you know, a la Dr. Fauci. He's had every single position you could possibly have just on COVID. This is not a podcast about COVID. I'm just using that as the most pertinent example that everybody can understand. So this idea, like you want people to just believe the facts. It's like people saying, believe the science, capital T, capital S, the science. There's an issue with that, right? In our modern era, or am I just crazy? Well, the issue is we had to do science in the public eye immediately, and people wanted immediate answers to to COVID mitigation protocols tomorrow. And science doesn't work that way. You know, like there's stuff that we publish, there's stuff that I've published that I'm actually not, I wouldn't say ashamed of, but no, that's not true now because we've had new data come out recently that said that what I thought I believe five years ago is different now because the new data is collected in a better way and kind of contradicts what I, you know, what I had five or seven years ago. I have the luxury of doing that because no one's like no one's watching what I do and like basing their entire life off what Ryan Birds tweets about for good thing. Please no one do that. Right. The problem with like Fauci and the CDC was people were literally basing their entire behavior off of what the CDC was trying to tell us. And honest to God, they didn't have much to go on in the beginning. 
you know, they were kind of guessing as much as anyone else. But they wouldn't admit it. That's that's like part of the problem. It's like, oh, no, you have to do this because we're smarter than you. Yeah, the, the problem is, though, if you say we don't know what we're talking about, then from that point forward, it goes, well, we're never going to listen to you ever again exactly. either. Right. So right. it puts you in a terrible situation, right, as a scientist, because no matter what you say, there's a good chance you're going to be contradicted by your own data three, six, 12 months down the line. And But I will say this. I think we live in an age right now where there are people who are... The people who say trust the science mean like I have a friend who's like we were at a, a thing outside. And he had a mask on. I was like, dude, I'm not wearing a mask outside. I've been double vaxxed and boosted. I'm cool. I don't need to wear a mask. It's outside. COVID cases are low. And he goes, yeah, but I don't want to think everyone think I'm a Republican. <laughs> I'm like, dude, like, I mean, if that's why we're wearing a mask, oh, like you, you, you got problems. But on the other side of the aisle are people who are you know loud and proud about like, I'll never wear a mask. I don't care. You know, and I think that was that's dangerous, too. Right. Posturing is dangerous. And I and I do think there is some value to COVID mitigation, although I'm not doing it anymore because I don't I don't really think it, it six months ago was a valuable. And by the way, I follow the data just like you all follow the data, except I look at the data every day on COVID, too, by the way, like in our county and things like that. But right. I also understand there needs to be a give and take between poly. This is what this is how the CDC really messed up. They don't understand that human beings are human. <laughs> they didn't get right. enough social scientists on the crew who wanted, you know, who could say to people like, you know, you can do masking for a while, but people get tired of masking. So you better do it when it really, really matters and then say, okay, let's take them off when it's going down. We didn't do that. And so now when Omicron hit, everyone was tired of masking. If we would have said, okay, let's stop masking, you know, a year ago after the big wave in last December, yeah. January, then we would have been a lot better off because people were like, okay, I'm willing to put a mask on for another six weeks to get through the Omicron surge. That's where we messed up is because we don't realize science and social science sometimes conflict with each other and the CDC doesn't listen to us. So Right. And obviously the gaslighting has been horrible as well. So I don't, you know, know when you guys will if this will still be in the news, but they're just now, you know, the Biden administration is asking for hospitals to almost rejigger their their numbers on people that were hospitalized because of COVID or hospitalized with COVID. Things that if you said that on social media a year ago, you would get banned or branded as some sort of conspiracy theorist. And so, again, this is not a COVID podcast. This is not a COVID podcast. We are just going to descend from the COVID platform. Can, I get, can you question. give me 15 seconds on that, though, quick? Like, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Measurement's hard. Okay. I don't think people fully write. So, let's say I, my dad got COVID, was driving to the hospital, had a heart attack, and you know had a car crash and died. Was that a COVID death? Maybe. Right. If COVID caused his, 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 his system to be overloaded and his heart gave up and he crashed his car, is that a COVID death? You or I or no one else can answer that question definitively. So, well, just so we can, right. Well, just so we can piss off everybody on this podcast, uh, you know, George Floyd, St. George Floyd, uh, he had COVID when he died. He was counted as COVID death. Right. So. Sorry, everyone's mad now. So let's just kind of keep going into the podcast. Good. No now, more COVID. Good. Move yeah, on. yeah, no more COVID. Yeah. One more thing about the intro. Again, I said the intro was chock full of great stuff. So this is the last thing because I, I thought that this quote was really poignant for our moment. Yeah. The founders of the United States knew that spirited debate followed by painful compromise was the only way their system of democracy could work. Yeah. Here's the thing. Obviously, I keyed in on that short phrase, painful compromise. In my opinion, Painful compromise does not exist anymore in our federal political moment, because if you even sort of acquiesce to the other side and you're a Republican, you're called a rhino. If you do that on the Democratic side, it's like, wait, do you hate gay people? Do you want all black people to die? It's a stupid, stupid moment we live in. Do Am I correct in saying that I feel like painful compromise is no longer a standard that we look for? 
Oh, I think that the problem is that we 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 we've we've elevated the hardliners and we've we sidelined the compromisers, and our system is literally not set up to deal with hardliners on both sides. Like the structure of American democracy does not deal with people who say this is where I stand and I'm never moving from this position. If both sides take that position, we literally get nothing done as a country. I don't think people fully realize that. And and here's the thing about compromise: if you go buy a car. A good a good outcome is the dealer feels like you got a bad deal and you feel like you got a bad deal too. Everyone leaves a compromise feeling like they got the raw end of the deal. And that's a good compromise. Unfortunately, and this is this is really the tragedy of American politics is the loudest people are the craziest people. Right. I was I had a friend who did a, a focus group with a bunch of like middle of the road people and they go, they ask him, Do you go to marches and protests and rallies? They go, No, we don't Never. do that. So and someone goes, Well, why? They go, because moderates don't march. And I was like, that the, that's the problem right there is poli- – and actually, there's social science on this, by the way. They, they find that they ask staff members of people, congressmen and women, uh, where what the positions are of their constituents on things like guns and abortion and things like that. They always think they're more extreme than they actually are because the mail they get is the extreme people sending the tweets and the Facebook messages and the, and the postal mail and all those things. They don't realize that the silent majority is actually fairly moderate on things like guns and abortion and, and homosexuality and these type of things. It's the crazy people who are loud on both sides. And unfortunately, I think only social media has magnified the crazy and given a megaphone. You know, Monica Walensky, God love her, said this. She goes, everyone in America deserves a voice, but not everyone in America deserves a megaphone. And I think that's the problem is social media has given a megaphone to the crazy people who wouldn't have had one 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And those people, unfortunately, are drawing more followers than the moderate people in the middle. And this is where we end up with no compromise. I mean, yesterday we all jumped up and down because they passed a, a bill to reform the Postal Service, which we all knew was in bad shape for the last 15 or 20 years. And it took, you know, 15 years to figure out a simple compromise for them to not go bankrupt. And we all jump up and down. It's like, we should be doing this kind of stuff every single day in America, yet everyone wants to score a win and say we beat the Democrats or we beat the Republicans. Look how stupid they are. That's not how we we, we govern. We govern by compromise, and we've always done it that way. Unfortunately, there's no incentive to do that right now. Yeah, there's certainly no incentive. Uh, social media is not helping with that. You know, uh, modern uh, media is not really helping with that. Uh, even, you know, the the other media establishments aren't helping with that. And I guess the thing that comes to mind is there are issues that I don't think there should be compromise on. Mm-hmm. But whenever you won't compromise on any issue across the board, it's just like, okay, if you're always yelling, if you're always yelling, then I, I super can't hear you. And so I think this kind of dovetails into the myths. So I do want to get in to some of the myths. Guys, we can't get into all 20 on this podcast. We're not going to do a 10-hour long podcast. You've got to go out and buy the book. It is in the show notes. Check it out. It is worth your time. But I want to start with myth three, and this kind of goes back to certain things that I don't think we should really compromise on. Myth three is most Americans have strong views about abortion but are willing to change their minds about it. So I, I want to read a quick, quick section, and then we'll kind of see if we can figure out what a good question would be. So here's a quick section from that. Consider this. This was mind-blowing, Ryan. Consider this. A weekly churchgoer in the United States is more likely to support access to abortion without restriction than they are to favor making abortion always illegal. Only when we focus solely on those who attend church more than once a week do we see that the pro-life position clearly surpasses the pro-choice option. But there are two important things to note about this category of highest church attendance. First, among respondents who attended a religious service multiple times a week, a majority still do not believe abortion should be made completely illegal in the United States. That's something worth repeating. Even among the most religiously devout, support for an outright ban on abortion is mixed. And we're not going to get into the second thing because I didn't really care about whatever the second thing was. Here's the main issue. Yeah. Here's the main issue that I see. It should follow that 
the more you attend church, the more closely you align with a biblical ethic, especially around the, the subject of life. But the gap should be enormous, not, not close, right? The second thing is, I think, and this is my personal opinion, I've been banging this drum for a very, very long time. I think pastors do a horrific job discussing the issue of abortion in a way that honors the sanctity of human life. Pastors either don't want to touch it, they're scared of pissing off some of the people in the congregation that have had abortions or paid for abortions or sat by and allowed abortions to take place. So I feel like there's a lot of things in that section that I thought were shocking, uh, but I, I can't really... I like I couldn't even think of a question to this segment because I was just so shocked. So help me, Ryan. I didn't even ask you a question. Just start talking, please. Yeah, abor people are not like hardline on abortion. By the way, on either side, and actually in the book, I kind of say that, like if you look at abortion opinion, it actually it, people think it's bimodal, right? So a lot of people yeah. are on the far left and a lot of people are on the far right. The reality is, it looks almost like a normal distribution, which is that most people are sort of in the middle of the distribution, which is like. Yeah, I don't love abortion, but I don't want to make it completely illegal, but I also don't want to pay for it. You know, so it's like this weird sort of like out of sight, out of mind thing. Like if you want to get an I think this is the modal position in America. If you want to get an abortion, that's your business. I'm not I don't want to pay for it and I don't want to know about it. That's where we really struggle is that that both parties both parties are pulling towards ends on abortion. I think that no one really wants, you know, like for instance in Texas, the you know, they have the the heartbeat bill which basically bans abortion almost completely. Only a third of white evangelicals would support that, like from a policy perspective. So it's like, who are you? Who are you governing for? But in the New York, we have a bill that basically says you can have an abortion, like even after birth, yeah. which no one, no one wants that either. You know, I think the reality is abortion, and this is why abortion is a really hard topic because people feel very passionately about it on the edges of the discussion and drive the discussion. But you, I don't think you, Kyle, or AOC, or anyone else on the left can convince anyone large numbers of people to go to their 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 edge of the spectrum right i think no matter how much you say that abortion is murder and that's a human life and all that kind of stuff people go yeah i kind of agree but i still think it should be legal in certain circumstances it's just something that people cannot jump all the way on board with far left or far right i feel like if anybody were able to be swayed in a large way it is to the side of life as opposed to the side of abortion and the reason why i say that is because a lot i'll use my own sunday school as an example Okay. So you, we're in a, in a super duper white area in a super duper white state. Everything's red. Everybody loves everything red. Okay. So that, that's where we are. And we're in church after all. And even in my own Sunday school, somebody brought up the, the idea of, you know, we should have abortion just in case the mother was raped, uh, and was impregnated that way, or, you know, a, a victim of incest and impregnated that way. And a lot of people in my Sunday school were like, yeah, that follows, that makes sense. And then I was the weirdo that kind of raised my hand and said, uh, in what other aspect of human life do we give the child the death penalty for, for something that their father did? Mm. And just me asking that question caused all these people to be like, huh, I've never really thought about that way. Most people that are squishy pro-life, they've never really dealt with the pro-abortion arguments. So when people make them, they fall to pieces. And there are great organizations out there like Live Action that will just go to the street and ask people, hey, what, what are your thoughts on abortion? They're kind of like what you described. They're kind of, you know, squishy in the middle. They're not big right or big left on the issue. They're just kind of squishy in the middle. And then they'll show them a cartoon rendering of what an abortion actually is. And they're like, I had no idea that's what's happening. Like that's what an abortion is because they've, they've just in their head, they've just made it this nice, clean, easy issue. And that's again, why I'm so angry at pastors. It's like, you don't have to just sit there and show, you know, an hour long, you know, time or pictures, scrolling pictures of aborted fetuses, but give your flock an idea of how to respond to these things. Because this is one of those places where it's like, 
it's either a human life or it's not. It's either worthy of protection or not. There's not gradations there. You know what I mean? Can I make a really bad analogy that people are going to yell at me for, but I'll make anyway? I can't. We've already made everyone so mad 20 minutes in. Let's Good. just keep going. I don't want to see a slaughterhouse, but I love cheeseburgers. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I know. I, I know. What I, you're I don't saying. want to see how a cow was killed because I'm sure it's inhumane. It makes me sad, right? Like, I, I mean, you know, I, I believe that creatures matter to God. Like, we shouldn't treat them poor. I, I love hamburgers, though. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. I, we, and I think a lot of people live in that tension that I'm describing when it comes to abortion, too. It's like, I don't want to see it. Because then I have to think about it, like in a, in a concrete black and white way, and I don't want to yeah. do that. I'd rather live in the ignorance of where I live at and just go and eh, let other people deal with that, and let other women, you know, deal with their conscience of that if they want to go down that road. I don't want to personally do that. So I think that's where most most Americans fall in that. I don't want to see how the cheeseburgers are made. I just want to eat them at McDonald's. Yeah, I understand that. And which uh, that goes straight to the you know the the hunting thing. There are a lot of people that are, don't like hunting that eat meat, which is like. Help me. Like even Jimmy Carter thought that that was a stupid idea, like of, of all the people on the planet, but we're not here to bang on Jimmy Carter. We've got other things that we got to get into that are going to potentially make people mad. So let's move on to myth six. I thought this was an interesting myth. Non-denominational Christians are rare. Again, this is a myth, guys. So non-denominational Christians are rare. Let me read a, a short quote from this section. Yeah. But there's a slow and steady shift occurring in Protestant Christianity that many people who don't pay close attention to American religion might miss. Denominations are rapidly fading in importance and are being replaced by thousands of non-denominational churches all across the United States. So for me personally, I did not grow up in any type of a tradition, right? Uh, we didn't go to a particular church. My mom drug me to a Church of Christ church, which they considered themselves non-denominational, which is hilarious. But then uh, at the same time, I started going to a Baptist church on my own, but I never really got the SBC connection. So I was like, ah, whatever. And then I went to a typical mega church for over 10 years here in the state of Oklahoma. And then now I go to a non-denominational Bible church that does expositional biblical teaching. So I've kind of been in both worlds, but really more in the non-denominational side. But here's the thing, as you're describing this, I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. How could this even be considered a myth? Because the rise of megachurches, right, led by CEO pastors that have no theological training, and you mentioned that in the book, like, like no grounding to a lot of things that they say. They're just TED Talk people, and then they sprinkle a few Bible verses on type. They're incredibly engaging. They're entertaining, but they're almost completely devoid of anything that resembles sound doctrine or theology. And no, I don't mean, you know, SBC doctrine or, you know, this whatever group doctrine. I just mean biblical foundations. These are business leaders, right? These are fluffy leadership book writers that just decided they wanted to create a church instead and take advantage of the, the tax exempt status. I see this as, as an issue for a lot of people because they're going to these churches where they're getting spiritual skittles. It's exciting and, and the, the band's good and the guy's really engaging and funny, but then it doesn't make any type of substantive spiritual change in their life. Am I being fair in my read of that, in your opinion? I think non-denominationals are like the venture capital of American Christianity right now. Like all these church planters, they're startup guys, right? They're like, let's go to ARC or Acts 29 or, you know, send network to the Southern Baptist, right? And say, give us a little bit of seed money. So we can build a runway. Our church will grow rapidly. We'll get to the point we don't need your seed money anymore. Then we'll give a portion of what we bring in back to the network that then goes back out to new church planters to start. So it's like the, it's almost like a venture capital situation 
But you're right. A lot of these planters, and this is what a lot of people don't realize, a lot of these planters have absolutely no theological education at all. Like it's they, were, yeah. they were school teachers, real estate agents, insurance brokers. And I don't want to bag on any of those people. By the way, I don't have any, th- I have very little theological education myself and I'm a pastor, but I also pastor a church of, a church of 15 people. We're not growing rapidly, you know? So, but these people are like, like Joel Osteen, let's just call him out. Joel Osteen has no college education at all, especially a theological education. And that guy has more impact on the theology of more Americans than any other pastor in America today, period, full stop. No discussion about that. And he has no theological education. Here's what I think about it. So churches have to decide how tall their walls are going to be because they have to decide how hard it is to get in, right? Like what is what is the barrier to entry for most non-denominationals? There basically is no barrier to entry. I mean, some of them don't even have membership for goodness sakes. You know, it's right, just like y'all right. come. We don't even know if you're here or not, to be completely mm-hmm. honest with you. You know, so we make the walls as, as, as short as humanly possible. But you know what happens when you do that? It's really easy to get in but it's really easy to get out at the same time. And so if you look at the data, there's more churn in a non-denominational church than any other church tradition in America, right? Whether it be Baptist or Methodist, Episcopalian yeah. or, or, or Catholic, because, you know, for instance, like in the Catholic church, they build some pretty tall walls in the Catholic church. You got to go through, you know, you got to go through catechism. You got to go through reconciliation. You got to go through first communion to get in so you don't leave because it's hard to get in. But for non-denoms, they say, well, you know what? We'll actually, and here's what I think they do. They think, well, we're going to have churn, but the inflows are going to exceed the outflows. So yeah. we're still growing despite the fact we have so much volatility in our congregation. Yeah, it's a business proposition, right? But, but I mean, it, it does follow. When I was on the student programming board in college and we we brought in movies for people to watch, whenever we said, hey, just come, the movie's free, we wouldn't have that many people show up. And then when we started selling tickets for a dollar, we created a $1 barrier to entry. All of a sudden people are like, I've got this ticket and I paid my hard earned dollars for this dollar for this. And now I got to go. And then we, we packed the place out just because there was something keeping them there. But even like I, I left, you know, this big mega church in Oklahoma because it's like, I'm, I, I'm getting Skittles every week. This isn't, you know, I'm not a growing spiritually. They wouldn't even notice if I wasn't here. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a leader technically I, I volunteer, but then I went to another church that didn't do very well with follow-up. And they were like the church that we have church scrolls and we really want people to be there. And I went up in front of the entire congregation. Cause it was at like this town hall type thing. And I looked at the pastors and I said, which one of you will be at my wife's house the night I die in a car accident? Because none of y'all know my name. None of you say you're, you're really, you think this is really important, but you don't respond to emails. You don't respond to phone calls. You don't respond to, you know, requests to, to, to interview. And I feel like in, in a way, Ryan, and I don't want to get off on a huge tangent because there's other myths I want to get into. We're, we're leaning on our modern business wisdom. And just ignoring biblical wisdom, especially with these CEO pastors, because it's like, they don't have, like, they're the CEO of the church. They're the teaching pastor. And guess what? They're the chairman of the board, right? Mm-hmm. So they can't be kicked out of their own church, right? They can't even be like, you know, the, the creator of Apple. He he got kicked out of his own company, right? They, there's no way for these churches to do that. And then you see these megachurch pastors or these parachurch pastors like a Robbie Zacharias. They do these horrific, terrible things. And people are like, where was the organization? It's like, what are you talking about? He was the main guy. His name was on the masthead. Like they couldn't kick him out. Do you feel like this is going to be worse and worse for, for Western Christianity? The, the, the less, you know, biblically based stuff that we have. What we're seeing with churches is the, we're seeing a hollowing out of the middle, the middle sized church, like the medium sized church, like let's say like mm-hmm. 250 to 700, you know, kind of like where you're big, but not huge. You know, you're not, a, you're definitely not a mega church, but you're not like a little church of like 75 people. The churches that are growing in America are the ends. So below 75 is doing just fine. 
although they're going to not be able to handle it eventually because of budget and things like that. And then above a thousand is growing really, really well. So we're actually seeing like economy, to use an economics term, economies of scale are kicking in. Right. And people are realizing a medium sized church is actually a really poor economics, you know, from a you gotta have so many pastors and so many janitors and so many, you know, like the overhead is really high in a medium sized church, but the revenue is not that high. When you go to a mega church, now it becomes easier to hire staff and you have to have fewer janitors because you have one building instead of two buildings. You know, so what we're seeing is we're gonna see fewer churches in America in thirty years. But the average size is going to be much larger than it is today because people are gravitating away from those medium-sized churches. And what's actually fascinating is if you read any of the church like planting literature or any like church growth literature, they say that like the ideal-sized church is probably about three hundred people. You know, because you right. can still know everyone, you can still have good yes. relationships and connections with everyone in the congregation from eighty to you know eight months old. When you get bigger than that, you lose those connections. But these guys, you know, how do startups continue? By growing. That's their reason to be. You have to grow. Why is Facebook in trouble right now? First quarter ever, it did not grow its user base. You've right. got to grow. And guess what? A lot of these pastors, that's all they think about is grow, 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 grow. No matter what the costs are, it does not matter because you growing is the reason that your church is doing so well is because we can all rally around growth. That's a good mm-hmm. thing. And then, you know what the bad part is? You hit the plateau and you go, oh no, what, <laughs> who are we? You know, what do, right. and that's, I think, I think Mark Zuck's having like a big moment right now in his head where he's like, what is meta? What is Facebook? Who are we? What am I? Because for 17 years we've grown and now we're not. So who are we? There's pastors all over America today having that exact same internal dialogue with themselves of if we're not growing, then what are we as a church? And are we too big? Can we, how do we fix that? How many pastors do I need? I think these are questions that the 20, like in the next 10 years, these are questions the pastors are going to face much more than what they've been facing the last 20 years. Yeah, and you see very few examples of guys getting out of that rat race. So Matt Chandler, you know, you mentioned Acts 29, but Matt Chandler of the Village Church, they had multi-site in the Dallas area, so all these different Dallas suburbs and everything like that. But years ago, they decided that they weren't going to do that anymore. They were going to, you know, break off all those churches to be autonomous churches, and they didn't do it immediately. They did it over time so that the churches could, you know, build up and thrive and all those different things. And then he basically said, we're not doing the multi-church thing. You know, this is going to be the Village, and that's going to be a own church and that's going to be its own church. And I've got, I have some issues with some things Chandler has done recently, but I thought that that was fantastic because it's like, look, those relationships are going to mean something. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not just watching your pastor on the television screen and he doesn't know your name and he would never come to your, to your bedside if something else happened. So I, I think that's actually a good thing. And one thing that you mentioned there, Ryan, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in terms of what I wanted to ask you about, because I want to get into myth 16. Mm-hmm. Myth 16 was America is much less religious today than a few decades ago. Okay. Yeah. So that's a myth. And I'll read this quick section here. In essence, what American society has seen is that while smaller shares of Americans claim a religious affiliation, those who still choose to attach themselves to religion are the true believers. Put succinctly, American religion has become smaller but more potent. Okay, so you've talked about mainline, especially in the nuns. You've talked about how people kind of falling away from that. And I kind of made the thing. It's like, okay, when you get squishy, this is the area of life. People don't want squishy. They don't want to, you know, they don't want this squishy idea of whether or not they're going to end up in heaven. Like that doesn't really work for a lot of Western Christians. But from your perspective, why are we seeing this happening now? What are the other things that it's attaching to now in our current moment where the, the I get fringes isn't a fair assessment of, of kind of what these places are, but you know, the people that are the true believers, why is that getting so much stronger? Whereas all the squishy people are kind of falling away. Yeah. Cause we're, we're drawn to, we are drawn to the extremes. You know, I think on, on both yeah. sides, here's a statistic that like kind of illustrates this in 1988, 
55% of Americans said they were not nuns, okay, but were also not born again. So in sort of the, I'll, I'll call born again like the other edge of religion, although it's not, but you get what I mean. It's like the more conservative right. view of faith. 55% of people were not nuns, but not born again. In 2018, it was 35% of Americans were not nuns and not born again. And, and by the way, that's not just because the nuns have risen, because they have, but also the share of Americans who said they have a born-again experience has gone from 35% to 41% over the last 30 years. So we're seeing both sides grow in the middle of American religion. I think what we've had to do in American society over the last 10 or 15 years is pick a side. Much more so than at any point really in all of our history, we've been forced to pick a side because now the parties have moved so far to the edge on both sides. And religion, unfortunately, and actually I, the next book I write is going to be called The Death of Polite Religion in the Future of America, where like the middle of American religion has basically been hollowed out because – Unfortunately, if you're white especially, to be religious is to be conservative, politically and theologically. There's not room for a Christian, there's not room for white Christian Democrats in America. And I'm not being, you know, I'm not being uh, overly selling this point, but in my town of, or my county of 40,000 people, there are four total mainline churches left. You know, there are over 100 evangelical churches. And of the four mainline, three of the four have less than 30 people in attendance on an average Sunday. So probably in the next 10 or 15 years, there's going to be one mainline church in the county of 40,000 people and probably 100, if not more, evangelical churches. So to be, you know, to be religious, especially in rural America, you have to be conservative theologically and politically now. In 1988, 40% of evangelicals were Democrats and 40% were Republicans. 40% of mainline were Democrats, 40% were Republicans. 40% of Catholics were Republicans, 40% were Democrats. We were evenly divided in 1988, and from that point forward, everything just kind of went boom. Right. Everything's split off. And the nuns now are super liberal. And to be religious is to be super conservative. And so now people feel like they have to align their religious beliefs with their their political affiliation. So we're not seeing liberal evangelicals. Right. We're not seeing, by the way, we're also not seeing conservative atheists either. There's not a lot of like Donald Trump loving atheists out there because you want to align your life where everything kind of falls behind this central idea to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be conservative, to be atheist is to be a liberal. I can't play against type. We call that cross pressuring, by the way. Like a good example is like a guy who's like an NRA member and a union member at the same time because it's like, ah, you know, like, what am I? Right. People don't like that. They don't like cognitive dissonance. So what they've been doing over the last 20 years is getting rid of that cognitive dissonance and sorting ourselves out in ways we've never seen before, which, by the way, I think is actually really bad for American democracy from an objective standpoint. Churches were better when Democrats and Republicans sat side by side on Sunday morning. I really, truly believe that because then you build bridges to the other side. You don't you don't look at the worst version of Democrats. You look at my buddy Bob's a Democrat. He sits next to me in church. He's a good dude. I like Bob. Therefore, Democrats aren't crazy. What we do instead is create the worst version. You know, all Republicans are racist, right? Or all, all liberals are communists. Not, neither of those things are true. But unfortunately, if you don't have any friends from the other side, you, you create the worst version of the other side in your head, and it's easy to hate the worst version of the other side. Churches used to be a place we built bridges, and now they're so politically homogenous that we don't do that anymore. Well, Ryan, I just got to tell you, all liberals are communists, so I did want to just uh, set the record straight on that. But yes. the funny thing about that is as, as you're talking through that, Ryan, is we're so busy in our modern moment. 
right? I, I may be bringing too many entrails in, into the same thing or too many trails in the same area, yeah. but we're so busy. We want cheat codes for how we're supposed to do things. Okay. And so if we can categorize ourselves or our families or our community, it makes it easier when we have to choose things. Going back to Mark Zuckerberg, one thing that he does is he wears the same clothes every day and people are going to hate on me thinking I'm doing a Zuckerberg because I always wear a black V-neck. But when it's podcast time and I've got every other thing I need to worry about, this is my cheat code. I just throw on my black V-neck and I come up here. I don't have to worry about, well, I'm talking about this subject. So do I want to wear my red shirt? Because I don't want people to think I'm angry. Like, no, I don't have to do that. I wear the same thing every time. So we like these cheat codes. So doesn't it follow that if you are a biblically based Christian, that conservative values that come from a Judeo-Christian ethic would align you with a party that at least portrays those ethics, which would be the Republican Party, because there are things in the Republican Party platform that are very anti-biblical, right? But the Republican Party has never claimed that they do public policy based on the Bible. You never hear a prominent, you know, conservative Ted Cruz or Dan Crenshaw or any of these other people stand up and say, well, while I was reading the Bible, uh, I thought about this thing that happened in the Gospels, and that led me to make this decision on whether or not we should, you know, put any uh, sanctions on Russia, right? That, that never happens. These are people that are just operating out of a worldview. But it should follow that if you're following a biblical ethic, it would lead you to conservatism, which only happens on one side of the aisle, uh, one side of the aisle no? What about black Protestants, though? I mean, they're theologically conservative, right? They're anti, they're, by the way, their view on gay marriage is in the book. I talk about this, like myth 19 yeah, is black yeah. Protestants are liberals. They're not liberals. I think the best description of them are moderates. They're economically liberal, but on social policy, they're very middle of the road, maybe even to the right of center for a lot of people. You know, the, the thing is like this current alignment has only existed for the last 30 or 40 years. Like, you know, it's one weird. of the myths is we've always, you know, conservative Religious people have always been Republicans. That's not true. Only forty percent of white weekly churchgoers were were um, were Republicans in 1975. So you know what's happened over the last forty years, where we created this connection between being you know religious and being conservative. It's not always been that way, and our black and brown brothers and sisters still don't see the world that way. I just don't see how we can say like and, and listen. There are some issues that I think we can say the Democrats are clearly anti-Christian on, and there's no doubt about that. But there's also some issues the Republicans are clearly anti-Christian on. The problem is when we sort ourselves out so much that we cannot critique our own party, that's where we are. And that's the part that really scares me is like the fact that like 60, over 60% 60 of white evangelicals want to cut legal immigration to America by 50% is anti-biblical to me. And my understanding of scripture is it says welcome the stranger more times in the Old Testament, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, right? We should welcome the stranger. I'm not in favor of illegal immigration. I don't think anyone, well, maybe some AOC folks are. I'm not in favor of yeah. illegal immigration. I'm in favor of if we if we close that door, which we should, we should open the windows wide open and create a very good streamlined process to get people here who can work, who can do good and build community here. Unfortunately, the Republican Party today says we want to close the door and the window and nail them both shut. You know, during the Trump administration, the number of refugee visas hit an all time low. And you know who those people are? They're people from China who are being persecuted by the government because they're Christians. We allowed fewer of those people in in, in 2008 than in any 2018 than at any point in the last 20 years. That is anti-Christian. Unfortunately, Christian leaders can't stand up and say Trump was wrong on this because the congregation going to go, Brr, you know, they're going to yell at them, right? That's that's the issue. Is I don't think either party represents Christian values completely, but if one party does, there's still times they don't. Yet we can't criticize that from the pulpit. 
Yeah, I, I'm a huge advocate of calling balls and strikes uh, when it comes to political leaders, when it comes to political parties, because if you align with anything 100% of the time, like you could be a big sports fan, like I'm a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan, but I'm not a huge fan of everybody on the team, of every <laughs> single person that they've signed. I don't agree with, you know, the person being at that place in the lineup. Like if you agree at, at all points, you're a zealot at that point, right? You're, you're like, you're, you're not a thinking, operating human being. But I think for a lot of people, it's like they're given the binary, they're given Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And they're like, well, goodness gracious, I guess if I got to pick one of them, I'd rather Donald Trump, you know, put the people up for the Supreme Court, not Hillary Clinton. And so they, they check the box and move on with their life. But I don't want to go too much farther down that rabbit hole. I do want to back up with that was just myth 16. I want to yeah. talk about myth 15 because I thought this was interesting. The yeah. myth is the growth of the nuns is largely from people leaving church, which seems to make sense. But uh, in light of this next quote, perhaps it doesn't. The data is clear on this. Much larger shares of younger generations enter adulthood with no religious affiliation than ever before. They didn't leave religion. They had no faith tra tradition to jettison, which I felt like an idiot when I read that sentence because I'm like, duh, that makes perfect sense. Like if they weren't raised in a Christian household, they can't leave the church when they go to college. It's just not been a part of who they were. Like imagine growing up in a family that did animal sacrifices your entire life. And then all of a sudden you get to college and they're like, bro, 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 what are you doing to that cat? Like there, there's not that weird moment. It's just like you, you grow up how you grow up. So you're not leaving something that you never visited in the first place. But that's one thing that I find that's interesting for, for churches that are evangelical, that do want to spread the gospel, that do want to be fishers of men, that do want to, you know, uh, do what Jesus told us to do. Is this fertile ground? For us, because, you know, we're, we're going after these people that help no religious tr tradition whatsoever of any religion so that we can convince them that Christianity is a thing. Or is this a bad thing because they have nothing that we can, you know, align with or go to? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, I think it's I think it's actually a good. It's good. It's not stupid. This is good news for the church. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, because when people leave, they're often angry. Right, they have reasons to leave, so you have to overcome those reasons to get them back in the door. If they never had anything to begin with, they're really starting from you know tabula rasa to use a Jean Jacques Rousseau quote. Right, they have nothing; they're right. starting from from zero. So you have to. And here's the other thing: the churches are not very, very well equipped. We've always lived in a generically Christian country, so yes, we always assume right. people understand like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son and what the cross and the sacrifice and the atonement and all those things. Huge chunks of young people have no idea what any of that stuff means, which means you cannot right. assume. Like, I remember when I was a youth pastor. I was talking to this girl who was really smart, good, you know, good academic student, but grew up in a, in a household with no religion. I was like, well, that's like the prodigal son story. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of the prodigal son before. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it, it, but that changes the way that Christians have to try to evangelize because they cannot assume anything about the person they're trying to talk to about, do they know the Bible? Do they know Jesus? Do they understand Old Testament, New Testament, or any of the covenants or anything like that? Because these people, and by the way, don't think that a lot of these people are being raised atheist or agnostic. That's probably less than 5% of young people are raised in a household where it's entirely atheist or agnostic. The vast majority of them are being raised in a household when we were to talk about religion, it's just a shrug, right? It's not yeah. anti-religion. It's not pro-religion. There's a huge difference. And we're, we're kind of talking about this more in the literature now. There's a huge difference between being secular and being non-religious. All right. Secular yeah. people are atheist agnostics. They don't like religion. Actually, for many of them, they think religion is a net negative for American society. But that's a small portion of America. For only 40% of the nuns are secular. 60% of the nuns are non-religious. They just don't care either way. And as I talk about the nuns, they're actually super persuadable. 25% of them come back to religion over a four-year period of time.
amongst the nothing in particulars, it's only 5% of, of atheists and agnostics. So huge, I mean, there's a huge fertile ground here. It's just the, the tools we use and the approach that we take has to be different facing that group versus what we talked about evangelism 20, 30, 40 years ago when everyone was generically Christian and left church at some point. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing for people to talk about. And the way that I see it is like, I think that it is fertile ground for people that want to reach out to these people. Because when you listen to people that do overseas, uh, you know, evangelism, they, they maybe they're in India, right? So we have somebody affiliated with our Sunday school that's over in India. And a lot of these people, like they're very familiar with some spiritual life because don't they have like 10,000 deities or something like that, that they're like, oh yeah, sure. Let's just add Jesus to our pantheon of deities like it was back in ancient Rome, right? Let's just go ahead and accept it. It's no big deal. But it's the exclusivity of the gospel that is the thing that you need to show these people. And that's the thing that really blows their mind. So I do think that that's interesting. The last myth that we're going to go over again, guys, we can't go over all 20, but we are going to do number 19. It is young evangelicals are more politically moderate than older evangelicals. So here's the longest quote I got. So let's see if I can read out loud. But I think this is very important. So here we go. Political polarization makes governing by consensus much more difficult, but the future of the American form of government seems downright untenable when considering the distance between these two groups of young people. Democracy relies on compromise, which becomes impossible if one side sees the other as the enemy. Winning people over to their faith is a crucial part of evangelically or evangelical religious identity, though evangelicals also often pride themselves on behaving differently from the rest of society. However, winning people for Christ becomes severely impaired and behaving differently may become at a large cost if there's little commonality between young evangelicals and other people. Even young people who are interested in Christianity may be turned off by the fact that the loudest voices preaching the gospel in their generation are those from the most conservative tradition in American Protestantism. And here's the big part that I keyed in on here at the end. Some who may have been open to hearing the message of Jesus Christ will not be if it is entangled with what they see as a set of homophobic and xenophobic political positions. This polarization imperils the future of American politics, society, and religion. So if as much as I could be triggered by reading words on a page, well, we're going to right now. I love yeah, it. No, 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 we're not. I think that we're going to end up on the same side of this, uh, to be honest. The, that last part was shocking to me, but I get it. I understand. If you've been fed as a secular person or as a non-religious person your entire life that, you know, Christians are homophobic and xenophobic because look, all the Christians that we know of are Republican. They're all conservatives, right? They're wearing MAGA hats or they at least voted for the most horrible orange racist ever to exist, right? It would follow that you would say that, okay, I guess this Jesus Christ guy who's the center point of their religion, you know, Trump is the center point of Republicanism. So the center point of their religion is Jesus Christ. And he said these things that I consider to be homophobic and xenophobic. I don't want to opt into that, right? But I guess, what would your advice be mm. to people like me that are mm. you lay Christians? Uh, we don't get paid to be professionally Christian, right? We're, we're not pastors of any kind. Because when I share the gospel with people, I don't hide the stuff that is problem, you know, problematic for people. Like when people say Jesus Christ never talked about uh, homosexuality, that's completely not true. Completely 100% not true. He, he discussed sexual immorality. Everybody knew when he was talking about that, he was talking about everything that could be considered a sexual sin at that time. The xenophobic thing I don't really get in terms of how it aligns with the gospel. But what is your message to us as we do share this message? Because I'm not going to hide who Jesus was. I'm not going to run away from it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah, I, think, I think evangelicalism is at a crossroads. On, on the issue of gay marriage, because if you look at the data, young people, like 75% of people under the age of 35 are totally cool with gay marriage. Like, no problem at all. And actually, I think for a lot of them, they're just like, 
I don't even think about it anymore. It's just a given. Like, you know, it's just a generic part of American life now that like same sex marriage is a thing and people do it and it's fine. And, you know, my aunt Nancy is married to Aunt Linda and then she's, you know, it's, yeah. it's totally cool. Right. That's there's actually this really interesting. Um, th- this is this is something in political science. They talk about like when you know someone who's different than you, you become more tolerant to that thing. Right. So if you know someone who's LGBT, you become more tolerant to LGBT. If you know someone who's Muslim, you're more tolerant towards Islam. Right. Because now you you personalize it. It's not depersonalized in your mind. The problem though with evangelicals is their position, which, you know, evangelicals have held 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 forever, which is that, you know, marriage between one man and one woman. Society is moving further and further away from that position every single day. Like it wasn't it wasn't uh, even by the way, even 15 years ago, it was not caustic. Um, there were 13 ballot initiatives in 2004, making marriage between one man and one woman constitutional in 13 states. It passed in all 13 states, including the state of Oregon, by the way, by 10 points, which tells you like how fast we've moved on gay marriage in the last 15 years. Like, and it's insane from a public opinion standpoint, we moved that far. The problem is though, you have to stand apart from the culture, but still try to win the culture at the same time. And I think those two things are at odds with one another and are only going to grow in odds with one another. And what you see, and I think you're seeing this like in non-denominational churches a lot because they don't have that like Baptist faith and message thing kind of hanging yeah. over them, is they're sort of like, you know what our approach to same-sex marriage is? We're not going to talk about it. You know, that that is the approach that a lot of them are going yeah. with because they realize that it's really a losing. If they speak out either way, they're losing. Right, they're going to lose either the hardliners on the left or the hardliners on the right are going to leave if they speak out. But that's the problem with religion, right? Is how much fidelity do you want to have to historical tenets of your faith, but also how do you want to grow? And remember, let's tie it all back to the non-denominational conversation we just had about what do those church planters want to do? They want to grow, and they and for a lot of them, they can't keep doing their job unless they grow and get you know the ties go up and the offerings go up and the plates get heavier so they can pay their salary. And you know yeah. a good way to turn people off make hard decisions and hard positions on things like same-sex marriage. So actually yeah. your incentives are aligned against being very declarative about what you believe because you're actually going to turn people off. The problem is evangelicalism has always been based on declarative, being based on clear black and white, right and wrong. It's an inevitable conflict that every church is going to have to navigate on its own. But if you look at the data, by the way, we ask people, do you, you know, how would your church feel about a homosexual, you know, being a member of your church? Five years ago, 75% of people said we wouldn't be okay with it. And then last year, it was 55% of people said their church wouldn't be okay with it. So it's maybe not coming from the pulpit, but by the fact of the silence is teaching people something, which is our pastor's not going to put his foot down on this issue. Right. is going to kind of allow it to slide in to tweak it just a little bit too. Women leadership. I think that's another issue where evangelicalism is really kind of under attack right now by the culture, which says women should have access to all levels of power in all institutions. What we're seeing is like non-denominational is doing this really interesting, subtle thing. Like on Mother's Day, the pastor will be up there in a chair and his wife will be in a chair next to him and they'll talk about parenting together, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like a we're going to like dip our toe in women preaching, but they're not really preaching because she's not standing up by herself and she's sitting in a chair with me. So what we're seeing is these non-denominationals are trying to find a way to have, have it both ways, I think. Yeah. I because think you're right. because they want to grow, and that's really if right. you think about it, if you think about it, that's the worldview they have. I want to grow, then everything makes sense from that worldview. Right, the incentive structure that that's the one thing I keyed in on what you're saying. Like obviously, the incentive structure is to keep growing. So obviously, they would be incentivized to keep doing the the life coaching and not doing the pastoral work or the ministerial work. And the the thing about it is is 
I feel like when, when the church tries to live downstream from culture, that they will lose themselves and they will lose the culture because with culture shifting as quickly as it does, right? As you just mentioned, you use an example in gay marriage. I think the reason why most even conservatives and Christians don't think about gay marriage as, as that big a deal is because it seems like it's a settled issue now. Mm-hmm. Obergefell, where they just rammed it through, right? And made law out of whole cloth. They're just like, well, I guess we can't really fight against that anymore. But it's interesting. People don't care nearly about uh, as much about that. But here we are, you know, the Roe v. Wade happened in the 70s and we're still fighting to this day to undo that unbelievable injustice and that horrible ju- jurisprudence from from that type of a thing. But I, I feel like I, I, I don't want churches to be looking at culture. I'm okay if you wear culturally relevant clothes. You're wearing your bomber jacket as opposed to, you know, your button down shirt. I don't give a crap. Like if you want to be relevant and have great graphics and have good stuff on social media, I'm all for that. But when you try to be culture, you stop becoming salt and light because salt is a preservative, right? Or a conservative, right? If you want to talk about it that way, but you can't preserve anything if you're not salty. And so I guess that's my, my message to the church because, you know, I, again, we, we, we're kind of running short on time here, but that would be my message is like, stand bold on the truth of the gospel. Worry more about truth as opposed to being culturally relevant. Do you have anything else that you want to kind of sum up there? Because I saw you maybe had a few uh, thoughts. <laughs> I, I think God love pastors. I love you. I'm a pastor. I feel it. But man, you're an impossible position. And I think with COVID especially, like I, I think we all should really sit back and if if you if you're at a church, go to your pastor this weekend and shake their hand and say thank you for what you've done the last two years, just surviving, not just COVID, but also all the discussion about transgender and LGBT and abortion and politics and everything else. There's really no winning in this job. And listen, none of us yeah. are getting well, not none of us, but like 99.9% of us are not getting rich doing this gig. It's incredibly yeah. difficult. And without pastors, by the way, churches go away. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, you have to have a salesman for your product and you want the best salesman possible. And unfortunately, I think a lot of salesmen are not going into this line of work because they realize how difficult this line of work is for a bunch of reasons, practical reasons, but also theological reasons and, and all the things we've been talking about. I worry about a crisis of having fewer pastors in the future. How many people are going to be willing to sign to be an assistant pastor? You know, or pastor of a yeah. church of 75 people. That's There's no glamour in that. There's no good. You're not writing books out of that position and making money. That's just not happening. So... Poor God, love pastors. I love you guys. We need more of you. Um, you know, and and I'm praying for you. As I and please pray for me too, because we go through this moment together. It's just tough. Yeah, it's it's a tough job. I don't envy it. That's why I'm not one. So uh, it makes it easy. But I appreciate you letting us dig into 20 myths so much. But I did want to kind of bring something up because you know, and I may have not even really noticed this, except we did both of these interviews in, in fairly close succession. So I feel like I read a lot of your work over here in the last couple of months. But um, I, I kind of have an issue with the way that you frame some things. And I think it gives away something. Yeah. Yeah. We're going there. Okay. Good. Go. Let's go there. So let's dig in. So from, from a couple of the books, it was like, uh, the quote is those who fail to believe in climate change, as opposed to people who question that it's all man-made in reference to Trump's second impeachment, you said for inciting an insurrection, no one's even been charged with insurrection. That's not true. The 10 people were charged two weeks ago with sedition, which is basically insurrection. Okay. But, if you're going to have an insurrection, aren't you going to at least bring a potato gun, right? That we still haven't even found anyone that had a gun that day, but we're not going to we're not going to really dig too listen, far into that. I will go to the mat. I'm flexible on everything. What happened January 6th was it was an attack on American democracy and it should never happen again. Period. It I'm was not, not legitimate I'm not trying political. To minimize what yeah. happened on that day, but when Trump says 
do this peacefully and then people go and do it non-peacefully. Again, I don't think it's Bernie Sanders' fault that someone shot up the congressional baseball game. I don't think it's Barack Obama's fault that some BLM guy killed officers in Dallas, okay? But I have other things on my list, okay? So let's figure out what you need to be most mad about, all right? January 6th was not legitimate political discourse. Period, full stop. RNC's wrong. Moving on. Anyway. Because no one was talking. (laughs) Shut up, Ryan. It's my turn. All right, it's my podcast. That's right, we'll talk now. Go, yeah. Discourse. You you know, you use the, the leftist euphemism, a woman right to choose yes right? uh, yes you talked about the muslim travel ban even though all those laws included non-muslim majority countries like north korea and venezuela uh you talked about anti-immigration but you also talked about that in this interview it's yes. anti-illegal immigration that is a very very important distinction like the most important distinction you know trump's policy on family separation at the border even though that policy was in place before he took office he just made it zero tolerance you said christians that support women in church leadership positions were thoughtful christians those are your words mm-hmm. and here's the thing All of those things seem to coalesce into me thinking that you're bringing a lot of your own personal bias into this data collection, and then that data collection leads to certain conclusion drawing, right? So if I were to guess, if I were to guess, and oh, I got it, you're chomping at the bit. I love it. I'm loving this. Um, If I were to guess, I would assume that you are a registered Democrat just by virtue of the way that you frame certain things because they're not framed in kind of the uh, normal Republican way. If it is Republican, it's heterodox in that sense. So again, I want to be fair to you. This isn't about throwing, throwing flames. And I know that we're sparring a little bit and this is fun and we're both going to leave this conversation loving on one another. But help me understand, am I wrong? Uh, I am to the left of the average Christian in America, but I'm to the right of the average academic in America. So, okay, what, so politically, whatever that means. Yeah. Right. So if, if there's a political center, which there's technically not, we've, we've talked about that. There's yeah. the blue side and the red side. Where yeah. are you voting? Uh, I, really I, I do not vote much, for Trump. I'm, I'm not voting right. for a Trump guy. I'm not voting for a MAGA Trumper. I don't do that. Um, I would vote for, if Mitt Romney ran for president and got the nomination, I would vote for him. I think he's he's a, a conscious conservative who makes good points. You know, he wants to work with the Democrats on on child tax credit, which I think is a great policy. He wants to increase, you know, more babies born in America, which I think is a good thing. Um, but I also oppose the Democratic Party on certain things like the Equality Act, which I think is absolutely atrocious because it puts the government above the church. You know, if you can tell the Catholic Church they can't fire someone for being gay, you basically said the church has no power in America anymore, which right. is an absolute abomination in my world. But I also think that Trump's rhetoric did, did incite violence. I mean, I just don't see it any other way. And I do think that he also incited this idea that the election was stolen, which is factually inaccurate. Right. I mean, he couldn't prove it in court. He could he not. Could not, he, not he a single per- and I said this in the book. Not a single person would say what they said at a microphone in a court of law under oath because they knew what they were saying was a lie. And that's the problem that I have is if you will say something on a microphone on CNN or Fox or whoever, but you will not say it under oath, then you should not be saying it anywhere at all. Right. And this I, comes back to calling balls and strikes because I'm with you because I was like, oh my gosh, it seems like the election was stolen. And then it was like all the court cases are thrown out because they had no evidence. I was like, okay, well, uh, you're going to have to come up with something else because the narrative isn't enough for me. Like narrative with data is something that I could support. The mm-hmm. thing is, is there's so a year from now, I want to have this conversation with you again, whether we do it on the show or not, because yeah. every month, seemingly, we get more information about what happened, about the FBI potentially being involved, about you know the police officers letting people into certain areas, the D.C. mayor removing a lot of the security from the area, like the week of the event. Like It was shocking, the number of things. But yeah, I, I can't give Trump a pass with some of the things that he said. But on the day of the event, he certainly did not directly incite them to do those things. I think we have to be fair. But but again, I don't care about that as much. I care about, so for you, yeah. do you personally, and I know you don't like getting into your personal feelings, you're a data guy, but I'm forcing you to. This is bullying. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like a man without without a, without a team? 
because there's so many people that feel like the political moment, the the die diametric political moment has left them behind. Do you feel that way? Because it sounds like you could vote for a moderate Democrat, which you know Joe Biden is not. He's whatever the center of the Democratic Party is. The Democratic Party is just super left now, so he's just the center of that when he's not falling asleep in his oatmeal. But if it seems like you could vote for a, a D or an R if if they end up in this sphere of the middle, but that doesn't really exist anymore. So do you feel like you have a team? Do you have a squad? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't have a squad. And I really I know everyone says like I'm a moderate. I I vote for the person, not the party. I, I generally <laughs> tend to vote for the Democrat by default because I think where I live especially, it's all MAGA Trumpers. Like people who are part of the three, like our rep is, is a guy who, you know, who got, who, who tried, he, he passed out in the general assembly, the Illinois general assembly, cause he fasted for two days beforehand and he had nothing to eat. So he passed out. And he also was a guy who was like anti-mask from the very beginning, which to me is like okay. a nutty position. Like I'm not, I'm not in favor of nutty on either side. I'm a guy who's sort of like, there's, there's reasonable, there's reasonable middle ground. And unfortunately where I live, the Republican party's become nuts like honestly like scary for american democracy mary miller who's where i yeah you is where i teach her husband's a three percenter which which i mean that's that's a pretty scary organization because they're willing to take up arms to do whatever they think is right i'm not in favor of that stuff right so where i am is i would totally if if the, the choice was between like aoc and like uh, who like mitt romney the only one i can think of right now is mitt romney i would vote for I'm mitt romney milk toast dorks that you pick can you pick someone else other than no mitt romney, i like please? mitt romney i don't think oh, he's a milk toast dork i think he's actually a, a principled man by the way if you watch his documentary mitt you actually see a different side of him that makes him realize he's way if he was like that on the campaign trail he'd be a lot more successful because he's like really? listen my dad got me to here and i just got to here you know like he made okay. he did all the work and i just pushed a little bit i'm like that's the kind of rhetoric we need in america from rich yeah. people right saying like listen i was born on third base but i got home on my own but admitting that I got to third base because where I was born, that's the kind of rhetoric I want more of in America, not less of. And I think politicians are just. But what's happened with the Republican Party with Trump is, is to me, is anti-democratic. And, and, and I'll, I'll go to the listen, all this voter registration stuff. We talk about all the voter, you know, they're talking about voter suppression laws and things like this. You know, what political, political science says the impact is on the vote. It actually has no impact on the vote at all. Um, whatsoever yeah well yeah there's no there's no measurable impact on turnout right so it doesn't actually suppress votes in the way they say it does but my question is and this is actually i think something that i i really really disagree fundamentally with the republican party about is i don't think voter fraud is a problem in this country and i don't think that because the data says that it doesn't exist at, at, a, at, a, at a scale that makes any sense at all right there might be one or two or four cases in an election of 120 million votes cast i'm willing to deal with that much fraud to allow people to have a little bit easier access to the vote what they what the republican party did was create a a myth which the myth is that the voter fraud is a huge problem in this country and they created a solution to a problem that does not exist and that's the problem that i have even though it doesn't actually have any tangible impact on the vote i don't think it's just why are we passing laws making it harder to vote in this country i just don't understand that and that's one of the reasons i cannot be a republican in the 21st century because they're they're basically creating crises not the democrats don't do this but they're creating crises and creating solutions that actually i think disadvantage people so the thing this idea that they're making it more difficult to vote by any realistic measure i think is is a false narrative because mm. some of the stuff that's happening like in georgia for instance like they're saying all these laws are like jim crow in my opinion, I think we should have, you know, uh, the people that can't make it to the polls should be the people that can vote early or you vote on poll day. Like that makes the most sense. We've done that for uh, hundreds of years in this country. But at the same time, the, you have these people that are pretending. Well, I, I guess this is how I would frame it. And I don't yeah. want to get into a big discussion about about that super, <laughs> super stru structured topic. But yeah. I guess it, let's say it's not a massive issue. Right. Yeah. And, and I would tend to say that the the uh, the evidence would agree with that position, which is your position. 
if it's a small issue now, why wouldn't we try to nip it in the bud be, before it does become a big issue? Mm. Because there are House seats. Because So right now, the House of Representatives, in, until the midterm elections, which will be a blowout, the House is very, very narrow. It's mm. a very, very narrow split. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there were small House of Representatives races that were decided by less than a couple of dozen votes. And so in that county, it makes a huge difference. And let's say that that would win you the majority in the House, that one county going red or going blue. Mm. For me, if it's showing up and showing someone your ID and them looking at your face and saying, yep, that looks like you, here's your ballot. That is not, a, a, that's not obstruction. That's not keeping anyone from voting in this narrative, which I know you don't agree with. I would never paint you this way that black <laughs> people somehow can't find the DMV, mm. right. To show their ID, even though they can walk into a liquor store and show their ID, get on an airplane, get a library book. That That's the thing that I think it's being blown up by both sides right now. It's not this big issue. That's probably swaying national elections. You're probably right, but why not nip it in the bud now? Create these laws that are absolutely fair that say, Hey, you have to show up and show your ID, get over it. But Utah's been doing mail-in voting for 10 years now. No one cared until the last three years. Why is that? Because Mitt Romney lives there. No one cares about Utah, right? That's Come a Republican on. state. Right. That's a red and state. With, you you get my point? Like, no one yeah. thought mail-in voting was nefarious until Trump said it was nefarious. Oh, I, I don't agree with that at all. Because even before then, when you would have people in California, which is the easiest punching bag whatsoever, California, but sure. when you had these people that were ballot harvesting, they were going out and getting people's ballots and saying, hey, I've got your ballot here. You want me to go ahead and turn it in for you? Great. And then they would look and see, like we have evidence all over the place. They would look and see who the person voted for. And they would either toss it out or put it in the go pile. And again, California's weird. North but Carolina that, did the same thing, by the way, and there was an entire election that had to be overturned. Absolutely. And I think that's absolutely fair. And it was Republicans that were responsible for that. That's exactly right. It it is both sides. So why not nip it in the bud so neither side can do it? Because I tend to think Democrats are the most evil things possible because they're all communists. But at the same time, like, why wouldn't we just get rid of the ability for that to happen, which is not an argument for nationalizing this. But if, if a local state or municipality wants to make it harder for people to cheat, shouldn't we be for that? We need to make IDs free, though. Can I just say that? Fine with that. Yeah, like we pay I, for all a bunch of other crap. Why not make IDs free? Yeah, but if you don't make them free and you say you have to have an ID to vote, you've, you've created a poll tax, which is in violation it, of the Constitution. Yeah, except that we're not paying tens of thousands of dollars for these identifications. And again, you have to have an ID to operate in modern society. There is a laundry list of things that you cannot do without an ID. So this idea that people are so people with iPhones and cars are so unbelievably downtrodden that they can't spend a few bucks on an ID. That's that's absurd. But let's give them a free ID then. Let's take that whole thing out of the equation. How much is it going to cost? Marginal. I'm with you. So I'm with you. If people want to say it's a poll tax, poll tax, that's absurd. But if you want to make them free and all you have to do is show up, but here's the thing, then people are going to have to show up to a particular place, get their picture taken so that they can get their free ID. That will be turned around by people that are on that side, the Democratic side of the aisle. It's like, well, do you expect these people to have cars? Do you expect them to ride on buses? How dare you? Do you hate people that aren't able-bodied? Again, the narrative is going to keep moving around. Let's just make the elections even tighter in all states, red and blue. Can we agree on that? I think we should have free and fair elections, which we've had in this country. Well, there were times when we did not have free and fair elections with it. when it comes to like, if you watch like gangs in New York and you watch like the immigrants would come and like, they'd have a beard oh in the gosh. morning and, and vote, you know, they'd shave their beard off and vote in the afternoon. Like we did not have free, like, you know, like they were not fair elections in those days. I think we have a very good electoral system in this country. I mean, we did. I, I think that, again, voter fraud is not rampant. <laughs> like, it, it, like find me find me 100 cases of voter fraud in 2020. Legitimate, like, prosecuted levels of voter fraud. You can't find them. They don't exist. I, 
I can literally send you a podcast where somebody, their company found over a hundred just in Michigan. Yeah, but were they prosecuted? They went to addresses that didn't exist where people were casting ballots, right? There was an under an overpass, and that was somehow the person that that cast prosecuted. If it's a crime, then prosecute these people. But a podcast host isn't going to prosecute someone that doesn't exist. That's the point. Yeah, but these give people it to the, don't give exist. Give it to the DA and say, here, here's evidence of voter fraud. Go prosecute this 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 voter fraud. The Democrat DA in Michigan, who all the votes were cast for one candidate, Joe Biden, Ryan. Uh, we're we're yeah, friends. Okay. okay. Yeah, okay. We, we don't need to throw any more stuff because here's the thing. I got one more segment left for you and I think you're going to love it. Okay. Oh boy, here we because, go. Yeah, no, no, no. This one's, this one's fun. We, we got all the, the hard stuff out of the way because you escaped the wrath of the segment in our last podcast because we ran out of time. Nice. But I like to do a segment at the end of my show called, what would you say to someone that said, okay, and I'm going to fill in the blank. And regardless of the topic, this is lightning round. You have a maximum of 30 seconds to give me your answer on this whatever the topic is. So what would you say to someone that said blank? You up okay. for it? Um, let's do it. Okay. First one. What would you say to someone that said you can't be Christian and Democrat? I would say, what about Martin Luther King Jr. For goodness sakes. I mean, the black Protestant movement in America is overwhelmingly Democrat. And I, I would, I, I, please no one white Christian go to black people and go, you're wrong. You, you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. They've been Democrats for, you know, 75 years now. They vote for the, the Democrats. I think that's what God wants them to do. Just like Republicans, you know, white Christians vote for Republican thing. That's what God wants them to do. Listen, it's not as easy as you think it is. You know, like right. people make it way more simple than it actually is. Politics is a lot more nuanced. Well, since I'm in somewhat equal opportunity offender, here's the next one. What would you say to someone that said you can't be a Christian and a Republican? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you can be a Christian and be, be a Green Party person, far as I can tell. I mean, if you look back at the Catholic Church, liberation theology was basically socialism, you know, and that's what the Catholic Church taught in Central and South America for 50 years. And actually, by the way, led to the disposition of a lot of tyrants in Central and South America because people thought that God wanted them to be free. So I don't think that, you know, God and theology is bound up with any political party or any political movement. And by the way, you can use the Bible to justify all kinds of things, good, bad, or indifferent, based on your perception. You're doing just fine. Let's keep this lightning round going. What would you say to someone that said almost all presentations of statistics are biased and untrustworthy? I would say biased absolutely 100%. But just because I cannot draw a perfect circle does not mean I should keep not try to draw a perfect circle, right? I am biased. You are biased. We all are biased, all right? We all, but the thing is we need to admit our bias. And I'm always thinking about my bias and trying to fight against the bias. If you actually look at 20 myths, I think some of them make people like Kyle feel very good. And then some of them make Kyle feel probably less good. And I think that's good, right? Like, and for me personally, there's things in there I wrote in there that I don't love that don't make me feel good, but they need to yeah. be out there, right? So just because you're biased does not mean you cannot fight that bias and be, you know, try to be as accurate as you possibly can. Dissonance is not always a bad thing. That's what would right. you say to someone that said America's experiment in self-government is destined to fail? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think we've done a better job than any other country in the history of the world of making democracy work. I mean, Thomas Jefferson thought that every 20 years we'd have a revolution and rewrite the Constitution. So we've actually beat his expectations by tenfold. But I do think, you know, we have to constantly fight for it. And there's that old quote, Benjamin Franklin was at the Constitutional Convention, and a woman comes to ask him, what do we have, a, a monarchy or a republic? And he goes, a republic if we can keep it. And I think we right. constantly have to fight the urge to go towards despotism or tyranny or whatever it is. We have to fight for democracy because, honest to God, it is worth fighting for. Right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, there's no such thing as capital T truth. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. 
oh, I think I grew up in a church that would say absolutely true, um, <laughs> which is, you know, but then, but then I live in a world where I, in the 1990s, I was told Bill Clinton could not be president because of personal immorality. And then I saw a lot of those same people turn around and vote for Donald Trump, although he's been divorced twice, cheated on his wife and is in the casino business. So I have a really hard time with the word truth right now. Um, what I believe is that the, the, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, is my baseline of faith. It's my dogma. It's what I have to believe to be a Christian. I think that everything above that is all doctrine, and we can fight about that all you want. But as long as you affirm the creed like I do, then we play for the same team, and that's my capital T truth. Brian, when's your birthday? For uh, April 30th. Okay, I'm going to send you a MAGA hat for your birthday since it's coming up. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, Western Christendom will eventually be a thing of the past? Oh, it'll definitely take a, a smaller portion of, you know, what Christendom is because we're seeing like rapid, rapid growth in Christianity in places like sub-Saharan Africa and Central and South America and even Southeast Asia. Now, China would actually let people poll about religion in, in China because they're not doing it at this point. What we're going to see is that white Christianity, Western Christianity is going to have a much smaller voice in the international conversation about religion because it's going to grow as a smaller portion of, you know, the, the voice of what American religion is. Right. So I think that's actually a good thing because, you know, we're all brothers and sisters, whether you're born in Sudan or South Carolina, God cares about you just the same. And those people should have a voice just like Americans in South Carolina should have a voice. All right, just a couple more left. Here we go. What would you say to someone that said, I hate Professor Burge's classes? Uh, they're probably right. I hate my classes too, to be honest <laughs> right. with you. Like I get so sick of myself. I get so bored with myself and, and I get it. You know, like sometimes like I, I poke and prod and I pull people in directions they don't want to go because I feel like my job as a professor is to say, take your position and my job is to take the other position. And I know people don't like to be challenged. I don't like to be challenged, but I think that is where education happens is in the challenging and like, let's, I think part of my job actually in, in academia is to give like a principled, smart, religious response to a lot of things because a lot of my students never hear that. And for a lot of them, it makes them mad, but yeah. good. I mean, that's what my my goal is, is not to make you feel good. It's to make you be educated and see the other side. College is not a daycare. Last question of the day, Ryan. What would you say to someone that said, it's impossible to be a good pastor and a good political scientist? Oh, I think I'm bad at both. <laughs> I mean, to be completely <laughs> honest with you, I'm, I'm not great at either because I feel like I'm always being pulled in two directions at once. But I also think that, you know, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, this is where I find my peace and my joy. And I feel like this is, if, if God called me to both and I have to stay in both for as long as that calling exists on my life. And I do think, could I be a better pastor if I did less with this kind of stuff that I'm doing right now? Probably could. Could I be a better political scientist if I didn't have to worry about, you know, people in my church and things like that? Absolutely true. But I also think I need to benefit as many people as I possibly can. And I think by doing both, I'm doing that right now. I don't know if it's going to exist forever, but for right now in this season of my life, it makes the most sense to me. I appreciate that. Ryan, I liked our last conversation, but dare I say, I loved this one. I think this one went really, really well, but hey, we talked about a lot of stuff. We covered a lot of ground here today, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, follow me on Twitter at Ryan Burge. Uh, you can buy both books, The Nuns and 20 Miss, on you know wherever fine books are sold. Um, my, my website is ryanburge.net, and uh, I appreciate all the support I got for book number one. Please buy book number two so I can write book number three. That's right, fellas. That will all be in the show notes. Ryan Burge, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. appreciate it. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed Ryan Burge's return appearance to the show. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links today. I've got a link to the new book, 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America, a link to the old book, The Nuns, and then also a link to Ryan's website, his Twitter, and his previous appearance on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to 
info at undaunted.life. The email is info at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.